Hi, everybody. This is Dan Mendes. I'm a managing partner with NextGen Venture Partners, and welcome to the NextGen Podcast. Uh, today, I was really excited to spend some time with Mike Baird, the co-founder and CEO of Avizia, a telehealth uh, company with over 90 employees in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, we invested, in fact, led uh, Avizia's seed round of financing a couple of years ago. We've been thrilled to watch them progress and become one of the leaders uh, in telemedicine uh, over that period of time. And I had a chance to chat with Mike about uh, his journey, about the company's uh, spin out from Cisco, uh, about their culture, uh, and about the future of telemedicine and some of the things that will take telemedicine from uh, where it is today to uh, much deeper penetration over time and really uh, unlock the potential of um, being able to separate um, healthcare from physically uh, going into a doctor's office or a hospital when that's relevant. So I think it's a great conversation, uh, and I hope you enjoy. So Mike, uh, thanks for spending a little time with us today. Give us a little history. How did Avizia get started? So Avizia was started three and a half years ago. Uh, I was working on a couple of teams within Cisco, and one of them was targeted at uh, selling products into healthcare. We saw uh, rapid interest in the telehealth market, and we had some products in the space and, and, and sort of decided that we could do that a lot quicker on the outside than on the inside. And so I negotiated a spin out of my group, and thus Avizia was formed. And uh, you took a couple of uh, your former Cisco colleagues with you. How did you uh, decide to, you know, work with Luke and Corey? You know, founding a startup together is a pretty serious decision. Yeah. Well, so first off, generally speaking, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to work with your friends. Uh, <laughs> it creates conflicts of interest and and things of that yeah. nature. Uh, in in my case, however, I had worked with uh, both Luke and Corey oh, for about four years at that point and know them for quite a bit longer. And I think one of the things that made that relationship work is, is number one, I was in charge. Uh, it's always nice to know who's in charge. It's not uh, uh, particularly at a startup or in any company. You got to have a tiebreaker. And number two, we had all come from a, a, a background that required excellence. We were all ex-management consultants. It's a very high bar for execution and capability. And so this wasn't just, uh, hey, me and my two buddies decided to go start something, right? These were folks that I had seen proven and tested in battle. And, and after having worked with them and gotten used to our styles together, uh, it was an absolute no-brainer for me. So give us a sense of scale today. Um, how many employees, number of customers, you know, uh, what kind of usage rates are you seeing? So we, when we left Cisco three and a half years ago, we were 10 people and, you know, probably around two or three million in revenue uh, from the team internally. Today, uh, we now are 90 people. We're in 1,300 or so hospitals, 470 health systems, uh, uh, our customers. Uh, um, we've got a fairly broad deployment of our devices uh, around the country, and you'll see us doing you know, around 100,000 uh, telehealth consults a year on our software platform. Uh, we actually do a lot more than that on some of our other devices. We just don't uh, track them. And, uh, uh, you know, around 60,000 secure messages a month uh, between doctors and patients and nurses, et cetera. So it's at a point now where we're legitimately one of the top three players in the telehealth space. Just give us a sense of how your product differentiates from other telehealth players. So we've gone uh, in with with a goal of embracing the complexity. Uh, our target market is the healthcare system, and uh, as a result, 
that means it's it's multi-specialty. It's not, you know, a lot of folks in our space, um, uh, which is probably an easier way to start, <laughs> have focused on, you know, singular service lines. For example, we do urgent care, sore throats and runny noses and, you know, uh, maybe an occasional rash or something like that. Or we do stroke care. And that's really great for uh, getting really good at something. But our customer, the healthcare system, doesn't really want to have you know, 50 different vendors, right? If you think of hospitals, they are built to serve a wide variety of use cases. And so we've sort of jumped in to embrace that complexity and be able to deliver across all those use cases. The result of that means we have to have a platform that can do that. And so for us, that means having uh, various applications, you know, uh, for the doctors and providers, for the patients. It means having various hardware devices and peripherals. You know, we have these wheel around carts. We have tabletop displays for schools. We have uh, different uh, peripherals and scopes. Uh, and But more importantly, at the core of it, we have a software platform that coordinates all of it. Think of it as like air traffic control and a data management platform and all the scheduling and things of that nature. And with the combination of all those things in our portfolio, it lets us effectively uh, meet the needs across the spectrum of care for a, for a hospital. And that really is what differentiates us from our peers. And so you mentioned schools. So, um, you know, if I do have a sore throat or I am ha- potentially having a stroke, where are these sort of endpoints where I can potentially connect in and, and see yeah. that specialist at one of your hospitals? So the way... Uh, healthcare increasingly works uh, as it evolves in, in the United States is the, think of the hospital at the top of the pyramid, right? That's where the scary stuff happens when you've got to have surgery or you need a specialist, et cetera. But at the bottom of the pyramid, you see affiliated uh, primary care physicians, you see ambulatory clinics, you see schools, you see, um, you know, a variety of ways uh, to, to, to connect. And, and they're for different levels of, of care, right? So when I need my annual physical, I don't go to the ER, right? I go to my primary care physician. But he or she is usually affiliated with a hospital network of some sort. And, and so schools is one of those areas, in particular uh, elementary schools, where uh, especially in underserved populations, you'll have children that show up to the school nurse, believe it or not, that have cancer or a tumor or, you know, serious uh, uh, issues. And the schools have to figure out a way to take care of them. And so many schools have now begun partnerships with their local hospitals to where they can bring in specialists to help. And that's usually in some form of, you know, public uh, partnerships. Uh, It's usually um, uh, funded by the state or through grants or things of that nature. But uh, uh, we've been fortunate to work with a number of pediatric programs uh, via, via schools, uh, particularly in the elementary care space. So uh, what is telehealth good for? Like, and, and where is it not good? I mean, I, you know, as a layman, I'd imagine, gosh, diagnosing cancer doesn't seem like the kind of thing you can do over video. But, you know, where does it start? Where does it end? It's a great question. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of everything. We estimate that somewhere around a third of all healthcare visits today could be empowered by telehealth. And it, it is not limited by specialties. So you mentioned oncology, you know, dealing with cancer patients. You're exactly right. When I'm in the physical act of doing my chemotherapy, I need to be in the clinic uh, and getting that done. But the next day, if I'm not feeling well um, and I need to do a quick check-in with my doc as opposed to going to an ER, uh, telehealth is absolutely the right answer uh, for that patient. 
many of our hospitals that are, are leading the charge on telehealth and are more innovative will tell you that they've proven telehealth in over 40 service lines. The challenge that we have today is that they're not all scalable. The three most common ones that you see today are telestroke, behavioral health, and urgent care. And the reason those are more prevalent is because the payment models make sense. Uh, it's a fairly low-cost copay for urgent care on behavioral health. It's typically that we have a lot of mental health patients in hospitals, and uh, the ability to get them treatment faster and, and unclog an ER uh, pays for uh, the various telehealth services. And for stroke, there's enough uh, value to the system from that referral of a neurology patient that it also pays for it. There are uh, literally dozens and dozens of other cases that are primed and, and ready to explode. They've gone through pilot phases. It works really well. Patients are satisfied. The challenge that we struggle with today is what's the payment model? Uh, today, telehealth is a little bit penalized in that uh, I could do the same consult, have the same outcome, but if I don't have a code to pay for it, I have no motivation to use it, even if it's best for the patient. So I want to talk a little bit about that payment um, structure. But first, um, you, you estimate that 30% or, or more of uh, po consults potentially could go through telehealth. What's the percent right now? Um, you know, it's probably somewhere around 1% or 2% uh, of consults. We think we're, and one of the things we're excited about uh, as a Vizia is we think we're in a very underpenetrated market. We think the uh, in particular, as millennials come of age, as uh, folks that have a different expectation for um, on-demand services, that we'll see a dramatic uptick in the use of those services in the future. And, uh, you know, again, some of that's limited today by the customer demand is there, but the facilities aren't quite yet ready to offer it because the payment models aren't clear. But uh, we see dramatic growth uh, in the space. Another just simple statistic on it is you'll see things like Medicare covers telehealth, but it only covers it for a few specialties like stroke, and it only covers it in rural areas, which is about you know 12% of the country uh, in terms of population. So little changes like making Medicare accept, you know, uh, pay for telemedicine have potentially dramatic impacts in the growth of our business. And, you know, often strategically, that's where startups look is for those areas that are primed for explosion um, once, uh, uh, once all the variables are figured out. And so, uh, so obviously, you, you want, you'd love to push Medicare, I'm sure Medicaid, along in figuring out, in, in reimbursing in a way that, that's more amenable to telehealth. What about the uh, private insurers? You know, um, how, how are they coming along with reimbursing or creating the payment structures that would allow for this order of magnitude increase in, in telehealth consultations? So part of why we care so much about Medicare is it tends to drive the market. Whatever Medicare covers, all the big insurers will cover. And so we really do think of it as Medicare first, everyone else second. That said, a number of payors have decided to offer some limited telehealth coverage. Uh, and I, you know, I'd estimate about two-thirds of the country or two-thirds of the plans out there today do have access for telehealth. Uh, it's typically limited to uh, urgent care type use cases. And it's strictly a cost savings move. Uh, you know, what they're doing is giving, uh, you know, they're providing a visit to you that costs them on the order of $50 and substituting that out for a $180 visit to your primary care physician. So you're seeing some of that uh, development as well at all the big plans, you know, Anthem and Blue Cross Blue Shield and uh, United Health Group, et cetera. 
So uh, as someone who cares about innovation and funds it for a living, it's somewhat depressing that the private players sort of sit on the sidelines and wait for Medicare to uh, to embrace innovation before they're willing to do that. Is, is that depressing for you as well? Or do you just, you know, it's just <laughs> you've been in healthcare so long, it's a fact of life. Um, you know, how, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, when you choose markets, uh, you choose the challenges that come with them, right? And healthcare has fantastic opportunity, right? It's a, it's about 20% of the GDP uh, in the United States. So it's a great market to play in, but it also comes with more regulatory um, uh, challenges, uh, typically longer decision cycles. And, and in fairness, we want it to be that way, right? If we're concerned about patient safety and we want to make sure these things work, that's not always bad. But absolutely, uh, that's why you'll see the pace of innovation on something like Snapchat, where your user group is a bunch of 13 to 20-year-olds, is always going to move a lot faster in a purely consumer-driven market than in something that's highly regulated like healthcare. But uh, you don't have to look any farther than things like ride-sharing. You know, when Lyft and Uber decided to go disrupt ride-sharing, you know, highly regulated, uh, a little bit of a, a fiefdom or a guild through taxi medallions or whatever it may be, and yet massive potential if you get it right. And so you shouldn't be scared of markets with high regulation. I think the opportunity is there. You just have to set the right expectations on how long it will take. Uh, and it certainly doesn't change your ability to innovate. In fact, in some ways, those sectors tend to have very low levels of innovation, uh, and uh, it, that creates opportunity. Uh, for people like me <laughs> to come up with a good idea that that breaks the mold. It's a lot harder, you know, the consumer space as a whole, it's easy, you know, innovation will spread a lot faster, but the bar for what is considered innovative is a lot higher. Um, and so there are always trade-offs on the market that you pick. So to the degree that the market size growth is is ratcheted uh, by payment payment structures and and by Medicare uh, policy specifically, what's your role in shaping that? Now you you are one of the leaders in the telehealth space, but you're also a relatively small company, ninety employees. Um, the other everyone else in that category is far bigger uh, in terms of you know capitalization and number of employees mm -hmm. and you know publicly traded and all of that. So how do you think? about that uh, lobbying or regulatory effort? So there's a couple thoughts there. One, uh, you know, the biggest player in our space is Teladoc, and they're around 100, 120 million in revenue uh, today. That's actually not that big. Uh, uh, you know, this is not Microsoft. This is not Oracle. Uh, these aren't uh, huge companies. And that suggests that we really are in sort of mile two of the marathon. So number one is we don't get worried about that. Uh, uh, and as I said, our, our revenue base puts us at, at about uh, number five or so in, in the broader market in terms of revenue. So we still have a right to go after this. We do that in a couple of ways. Is One, we, we work with the innovative hospital systems to get in as fast as we can. And that raises our stature, raises our, our capability and our product. Uh, and that creates demand from the consumer side. Number two, uh, we do work on the regulatory side, and we're uniquely able to do that here in the D.C. area. I think it's one of the reasons why innovation uh, works well in this market and why I like being a tech entrepreneur in the D.C. area is uh, I can just get in my car and drive downtown and meet with my local senator or secretary or whoever it may be. Uh, we use two different um, advocacy groups, the American Telemedicine Association, and we're also involved with the Alliance for Connected Care. And we found that to be very effective in helping shape policy. 
in particular, in times like right now, where we've just gone through an administration change, you have new people uh, in office that want to have the discussions and get up to speed. And I find it to be incredibly helpful that I can go educate them. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a unique benefit to this area. I mean, just as an example, um, in the last uh, two or three weeks, I've been down the hill a couple times to talk with the Office of Management and Budget, to talk with uh, uh, Center for Medicare Services. Uh, I'm going to go talk to the Secretary of Human and Health Services next week. And that's really nice to feel like you've got a say in shaping where this goes. We've worked pretty closely with a couple of senators on some telehealth legislation. And, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of money or a lot of effort. It definitely takes a lot of patience. But the payback, again, is huge. You know, if tomorrow the Medicaid restriction or Medicare restriction was suddenly dropped, that sort of makes my market about 20 times more valuable overnight. And so uh, those investments are well worth it. So there is that potential for the market to be 20 times uh, more valuable. You mentioned that you're sort of in, in mile two of, of a 26-mile marathon. I'm curious, what does the 26th mile look like? Now, obviously, it, it includes much greater penetration of telehealth services. But are, are there other changes in you know, the experience, the product, the quality for yeah. patients, for doctors? Yeah, I mean, we believe that uh, this market has the potential to be massive. We believe that 10 years from now, there will be billion dollar, what we call healthcare collaboration companies um, uh, that won't necessarily be strictly defined as just telehealth. You know, it's it's making it much easier for doctors and nurses to communicate within the hospitals. It's making it easier for us to integrate uh, various devices, you know, think about your, your Fitbit or, you know, various passive sensors, the whole Internet of Things technology. All of these things are moving towards uh, uh, platforms and utilization that will be huge. Uh, and so I think that's important, right? You don't really want to be in a market where when you, you run all the numbers and you look at all the potential customers and you say, wow, this whole market's worth $5 million. Well, it's probably not worth your time to, uh, to try and, and, and make something out of it. But uh, we believe this market has tremendous potential for growth. And what will happen is first, you know, you'll see the scale around those two or three use cases that make a lot of sense. Then you see other ones starting to get adopted. And uh, both those being adopted and the, the, the change in sort of 1% of or 2% of Americans having used telehealth to being 50% or 60% has uh, an exponential effect on, on the industry because it's not only does everybody use it, it's what they use it for. And it becomes ingrained in the way uh, we do everything, you know, just like other digital transformations that we've experienced uh, in industries where, you know, I order my groceries online now uh, from Amazon. Now I get my car from Lyft, uh, you know, my, my, my taxi ride. I, I, I do all of my banking with my online app by snapping a picture of my phone. Uh, in the beginning, you know, Internet was kind of cool because we had email. <laughs> and that was it, right? That was the proven use case. Um, but you get deeper and deeper in it, and we certainly see the same trends in healthcare collaboration um, uh, and expanse, uh, expanding the use cases. Is, is there any role for virtual reality over time in telehealth? I think that there is. Um, to me, it may not be strictly telehealth related. I'll call it uh, teleeducation or teletraining or things of that nature, right? You know, when you think of uh, physicians uh, learning how to do uh, various surgical procedures, uh, but uh, when you think of even patients being educated on uh, how to use different tools that they have at home, you know, how to attach a, a sensor of some sort or, or things of that nature, I think 
um, VR and AR are great tools for learning and education. Um, we've also seen some things in, in, in therapy types uh, for behavioral health patients, et cetera, where um, being in virtual or augmented reality situations can help them cope with different things. So I, I look at that as a technology that is complementary to what we're doing. Telehealth as a whole is just another way to communicate, right? Uh, I can see you face-to-face and we can share information. But if you think of uh, you know, a, a behavioral health patient who undergoes a therapy session in a virtual reality session and then you know, pushes a button and engages with their, uh, their psychiatrist, uh, that can be a very effective treatment plan. So uh, all of these technologies are, are relevant to augmenting uh, delivery of healthcare. So I want to go back to your company, um, and uh, you've won a number of uh, awards or recognition for being one of the best places to work. Um, and uh, I notice on your, your website, um, on your job site, it says, uh, make this your dream job. Uh, what do you mean by that? You know, I've had the, the 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 fortune of working at a lot of fantastic companies. You know, market leaders, number one players across a variety of industries, and most of them were very big. Uh, I've also worked at a couple of startups, and there's a couple of themes that come in. You know, when you're trying to get best in breed talent, um, you know, someone, uh, a software developer that could be working at Amazon or they could be working at you. One of those themes that comes up is autonomy and control and flexibility. Uh, uh, and variety. And I think that's something that that startups are uniquely poised to provide. And so when we say make this your dream job, it's a little bit of the ability to architect your own future, right? When uh, when you show up, no one's going to say, here's the box that you belong in, and that's all you're going to do and push this button 100 times a day, and we'll call it good. Uh, We come in and say, typically, well, we need some help covering uh, this issue over here, but as long as you're here, you're going to find other issues and feel free to go at it. And so for us, it's everything from the scale and scope of work that they do, finding things that are interesting to them and pushing on it, looking for new areas to develop the business, or things like just making it a more fun place to work. Uh, when we say your dream job, you know, well, what kind of social events do we want to have at the company? What kind of uh, charitable causes do we want to support? What kind of benefits do we think make sense to attract people that we want here? And we've had a wide amount of latitude and participation by our employees in driving some of those things. And it really does help make uh, this a place that people love to, to work. So I know uh, that that's actually what happens at Avisia, but it also sounds like the kind of thing that, you know, would be great in theory, but incredibly hard in practice. It sounds, you know, <laughs> you got to put a lot of work into making sure that, you know, people, you know, have the ability to make it their dream job while also getting, you know, the stuff done that needs to get done. Um, and I could imagine people's dreams changing from quarter to quarter. <laughs> so how how do you balance all that? How do you manage yeah. all that? How do you decide yeah. to make that investment in, in this culture? There, there are trade-offs to everything. And so the other mantra that you will hear us say all the time is focus or fail, Right. So it may be great that you think we should be in some super awesome implantable sensor that does whatever, right? But if that doesn't have revenue associated with it and it takes a really long time to get to, we're not meant to be a, a Xerox lab of some sort where, you know, or Bell Labs where there's unlimited government funding to just think and dream and do whatever, right? So we put a parameter around it. And the parameter is what drives growth of the business, what gets us revenue, what makes us survive. And we remind people uh, on a pretty regular basis that this is super fun and we don't want it to end. 
And it ends by us not hitting our numbers. It ends by us not finding customers. It ends by us making things that are not relevant in the marketplace. And uh, that's not to say that we haven't made mistakes or missteps on products that we've done or things that didn't resonate uh, or projects that didn't really have the ROI you'd hope for. But by reminding ourselves of that every day, it channels it. And so I think for most folks, it gets the dream is fulfilled by the fact that they're at a mission driven company. You know, people love that they're saving lives here. I mean, that's something we talk about and we do every single day. They love that that's an interest that, that matters to them. They love that they're in technology and within technology, you have a lot of latitude to solve the problems. Uh, and that gives them a certain amount of tinkerability uh, <laughs> to try different things. They love that it's a new company where we haven't figured out what the right policy is for X, Y, or Z. And so tell us and we'll listen and, you know, we'll be smart about it and we'll run the numbers on it. But if it makes a lot of sense, let's do it. Uh, and so I think that notion that all the rules aren't set or fixed and you get to participate in building that, that's what we mean by make this your dream job. But like all things, it has parameters or we'd run through money pretty quick <laughs> and we wouldn't be around to fight another day. And, and that doesn't help anybody. Mike Baird, thanks so much for taking a little time today. Anytime, Dan. Great to chat.